Would you take God's Word and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12? We'll be there in a moment. As we look to God's Word this morning, why don't we bow in a word of prayer? Father God, we ask that your Spirit would speak to us, that we would receive what you have for us this morning. May we take it and learn to live it out this week in ways that really build your kingdom here on this earth. As we sang, as we often pray, we want your will to be done as in heaven. So we want the same will to be done on this earth. Thank you for this privilege, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to talk about heaven this morning. And of course, there's books written about heaven. The title of the message is the title of a book. It's not original with me, but it's a great title. There's movies. And let's be honest, we're infatuated with stories of people who die, go to heaven, and come back to talk about it. It's an interesting topic, mainly for what we do not know. Because Scripture talks about it, but what we do is a lot of what we call gap thinking. We fill in the gaps. But here's the first question I'm going to ask this morning. Why does God give us glimpses of heaven? And I, and I use the word glimpses because that's really what it is. It's very, very small amount of detail that talks about something that will happen for all of eternity. So why does God give us glimpses of heaven? I ran across an article this past week. It's eight years old, written in 2007. The author was Cal Thomas. He used to write for the um, New Era paper. But the title was this, Politics in America, a Worthy Substitute for Messiah? Question mark. And he goes on to say this, As we celebrate the day once known as Christmas, there is a sense that the Messiah, which the day is supposed to acknowledge, is rapidly being supplanted in the public consciousness by a new American religion called politics. Consider the number of messiahs who present themselves as redeemers and who claim the ability to deliver the masses from deplorable conditions. We call them candidates. Conditions from which only, they say, government can save them. Now think about that in terms of what we're about to talk about because if Government is our savior. It will dictate a whole different lifestyle. Now contrast that with a book that Richard Dawkins wrote in the same year, and here's what he says. He states that the hope of America lies in the reality of getting rid of all religion. Until we do, he writes, violence and posers will continue to escalate. So that's his solution. Get rid of all religion. And here we are eight years later, further down this philosophy as evidence in silencing those who speak differently from the political correctness obsessing our world. A lot of people, their hope, their Messiah, is born in their politicians. Now, if you want examples about what's happening today, this past week, I read an article about a group of Christians in a local high school in Wyoming. They were told they cannot pray in the cafeteria for their food. 
Someone saw them and was offended and felt like they were imposing their Christianity on them. Now, the good news is, because there was such an outcry, the school did overturn that policy and stated that Christians are allowed to quietly pray. Not out loud, but quietly pray for their food. Contrast that in Texas, a Muslim student was given permission to have her prayers wherever she wanted, whenever she wanted. And because it was on a particular day, every single day they have to hold the school bus because it conflicts with the time that she has to pray. Let's go to another country, Great Britain. For those that are into boxing, you would know that Tyson Fury won the heavyweight championship of the world. It is the only second Brit to ever do so. The other was in 1899, so it's been a long time. And of course, they were celebrating, but the celebration was short-lived. He now is under investigation, not for spousal abuse, not because he fought somebody at a bar. It wasn't because he spanked his kids or anyone else. It was because they label it in an interview, gave hate speech. Here was the hate speech. Here's what he said. We live in an evil world. The devil is getting very strong at the minute, very strong. And I believe the end is near. That was hate speech. Now, he did go on to talk about three things that Britain's faced with that he never thought he would see in his lifetime. And this is probably where the hate speech comes in. He talks about same-sex relationships. They move from civil unions to marriage. Most people don't realize that prior to this whole marriage controversy, same-sex couples could get a civil union that had all the legal rights of a married couple. It just wasn't called a marriage. But he talked about that. He talked about abortion. And he talked about pedophilia, consensual sex with adult and children. And he says, who would have thought in the 50s and 60s that the first two would be legalized? And of course, the conversation is going down the road of the third. Now, you want to know just how bad it is? Did you hear the word microaggressions? That's when people are saying things that are offensive. To prove a point, somebody went to a local university to get signatures. And they wanted to see if they could get how many in the university and if people would be willing to do this. And it was to ban the song on the local radio, Bing Crosby's I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. And, of course, their argument was it's racist because it's a white Christmas. So I watched this video of this guy going around, and there wasn't a single student that refused to sign it. They go, yeah, that makes sense, and they signed their name for this petition to ban it from a local station. That's how bad it is. Now, I say all this because I don't want you to sit there saying, well, woe is me. Look at the world we live in. Let me remind you that history is cyclical. Ecclesiastes says there is nothing new under the sun. So this has gone on before us. But I go back to my original question, and the reason I raise this is, is why does God give us glimpses of heaven? Well, here's the first reason. So that we develop a pervasive view of God. He is high and exalted, sitting on a throne, all this glory, majesty stuff, this new heavens, new earth. You know, we read stuff. The last book of the Bible is called The Revelation of Who? Have you ever noticed how people read it? Far too often, 
It sounds like it's a revelation of Satan. They're more aware of Satan and evil, the tribulations, the war diseases, rather than this glorious, magnificent, great are you, Lord, revelation of Jesus Christ. The book was written to reveal Jesus Christ. What happens today when politics and anything else becomes our Messiah? We lose this awareness of God. And then we retreat, and then we create safe places, and we become detached. And then we pray, Lord Jesus, come before any of this affects me personally. Because we all know when we get to heaven, with all the diversity of peoples through generations and nations, they're only going to play the music that I like. We know that. A.W. Tozer says the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So one of the reality why he gives us glimpses of heaven is so we can get this magnificent, pervasive view of who God is. And that's where we have to park, and that's where we have to dream, and that's where our visions need to come from. Otherwise, we enter a woe-is-me world thinking that no one's ever suffered like we have. Secondly, it's so we have a pervasive view of hope. When we realize there's heaven, when we realize there's an eternity, this is not all there is. And so I think heaven is a view of hope, and it's a gift. We don't have hope in this world. We have hope in the world to come. If we only have hope in this world, we're bound to this life, and it can be tough depending upon your circumstances. So those two things, I think, are why he gives us a vision of heaven the way he does. Just enough details to help us think about who he is and about hope, that this is not all there is. Now, there's two passages I want to talk about this morning. One's in Colossians 3, but before we go there, I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You can turn there with me or you can follow along on the screen. Paul writes in verse 1, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, when you read this verse, this scares most Baptists. We don't like to talk about people having visions or revelations and all those kinds of things. But Paul is one of those Christians. Remember the road to Damascus? Who did he see in a vision? He saw Christ. So Paul's talking about some kind of metaphysical experience. In verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know some of you are getting a little scared. <laughs> but it happened. And you notice by the language, Paul says there's really a loss of words. We cannot describe what happened because there's nothing in our language to define what we saw. But you notice he talks about being caught up in the what heaven? The third heaven. What is the third heaven? Now, other religions, some say there's seven heavens. The word heaven itself means elevation or heights. But in Islam and Hinduism, they talk about seven heavens. In Christianity, we talk about three heavens. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Reread this again sometimes. Here's what it says. In the beginning, God created the 
heavens, plural, and the earth, singular. So what are the three heavens? The first is what we call our atmosphere. It's the air we breathe. Psalm 78 illustrates this, verses 23 through 25. Yet he commanded the skies above to be opened. Then he talks about the doors of heaven. So there's two separate pictures here. And he rained down on them manna to eat. So he's talking about back when Israel was going through the wilderness. And gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels. Did you ever know that manna was the bread of angels? They were eating angel food. And that is not where we got angel food cake from, okay? So don't go there. That's filling in the gap that you don't need to fill in. He sent them food in abundance. So one of the heavens that Scripture talks about is our atmosphere. It's the air that we breathe. The second heaven is the universe or universes that we now know exist, both known and unknown. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And, of course, the vision there is a starry sky, a moonlit sky. And if you've ever been to a place that's away from artificial light, it is literally unbelievable what exists. So much of our artificial light drowns out the majesty of God. And there's a good lesson there, isn't there? <laughs> How much we drown out this, this view of who God is and this view of hope because it's our light, not his. Now, the third heaven is what we call God's place. John verse 14, verses 1 and 2. Many of you have read these verses before, but it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Now let's go back to 2 Corinthians. In verse 3, I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in body or out of body. I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Literally, he's saying that what he saw and what he heard was indescribable. And this makes sense to us because when you read the Old Testament and you have these prophets that have visions like Ezekiel and what he describes, it's just really weird, isn't it? I mean, heads of lions and eyes and circles spinning around. He is trying to take something that he saw and describe it in human terms that literally is indescribable. Now, having said that, this frustrates us because we like to know, don't we? But let's back up for a moment. If God is this incredible, awesome, holy, sitting on a throne, loves you, wants the best for you, all these kinds of things, do you trust him enough to build the house? Or do you want your say in it? Look at verse 5. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. In other words, he's saying, okay, this man saw something, so did I, but I am not going to talk about it. <laughs> Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. You know, they had the same issue that we have today when someone talks about things they've seen. They often move to celebrity status. Today, if someone goes to heaven and comes back, I mean, they publish a book. They take it on the road. Book signing tours, movies, 
Paul's saying, I'm not going to do any of that. And I know there's a lot of people that have some experiences they just don't talk about because they're afraid of how people will view them. Paul states here that everything that we do, we do to an audience of one. It's not about us impressing people. It's about us glorifying and worshiping our God. And so we can ask ourselves the question, whenever we start talking about this kind of stuff, who do we want to impress? When you start talking about heaven and, and you fill in the gaps and all this theology, and of course there's, there's different theologies about heaven in terms of how we're going to get there, who do you want to impress with your theology? Now look at verse 7. So to keep me from boasting, becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Have you ever thought that there are times of difficulty in your life to keep you humble? If you haven't, think about it. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, if you continue the passage, he says, I prayed three times and the Lord didn't take this away. So it's something that Paul lived with. He has this incredible revelation that he's not going to talk about. He's not going to brag about it. Then over here, he has these thorn in his flesh to keep him humble because of what he's seen. Now skip over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 verses. Think about what just Paul said in context of heaven. He writes these words, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now here's the first thing that we know from these passages. The first is the title of the message. Heaven is for real. And it's just not a place. It's just not a destination. But it has core values. It has relationships. It has a standard of living and thinking. It is a frame of reference. It is a vision that helps us navigate this world. So heaven is for real, but it's just not a place. I mean, again, we pray if we're going to pray like the Lord taught us to pray, that we really want his will done here as it is in heaven. We sang that, we pray that. So it's far more than just a destination. But we have to first say, according to Scripture, heaven is for real. It's not some mythological idea conjured up in people's minds. Now here's the second thing. And I'm going to ask it in the form of a question. What do I keep in my heart? If heaven is for real, what do I keep in my heart? Paul says, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. We've just come through our Christmas season in Luke chapter 2. As the story progresses, Jesus is 12 years old. He goes to Jerusalem, feasts of the Passover, Mom and dad are found the caravan home, and they realize that they lost Jesus. If you ever lost one of your children, what happens? You get frantic. And it says they lost him for three days. Now, you realize that really was a prophetic statement about what's going to happen later on when he dies. He's going to be missing in this earth for three days, but he'll rise again. But that's another whole message. 
But when they found him, he explained what he was doing there. And here's what it says. But they did not understand. So even though he explained it, it didn't make sense. But however, it says that his mother Mary kept all these things in her heart. Now what we keep in our hearts will determine life. It's that simple. What you keep in your heart will determine life. If, if you write heaven out of your heart, life's going to get pretty tough. If you put heaven in your heart that you're no earthly good, because <laughs> all this fill-in-the-gap kind of stuff, I mean, he lets us know it's for real. He lets us know that he's designing places for us. He lets us know that's where he lives and that's where everybody else lives that are found in Jesus Christ. But beyond that, we don't have a whole lot of details. I know we get caught up when it talks about precious jewels and stones and gold and streets being paved, that stuff. In America, we say, wow, that's going to be really cool. I was in a class one time with a believer from India, and he says, well, to us, it just simply means that all this stuff we get excited about, it's going to be like asphalt. It's going to be dirt. We're going to walk on it. We're not even going to think about it. Different perspective, isn't it? See, the perspective is not that that stuff's there. The perspective is that we get to be with God forever and ever and it's a new heavens, new earth, and he designs it all. And guess what? He can design it a whole lot better than us. Amen? My wife and I had the privilege of going to um, our family's business Christmas dinner this past week, and my brother stood up and said a few things, and he talked about an email that he received. It was about the gratitude grinch. In that, here's what it said. How staggering our abundance is when you talk about stuff. That we live in a culture that says, if only I had this, then I would be so much happier. And when we do this, we slip from a mind of abundance and blessing, which we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Heavenly places means here and there to this insatiable appetite of never enough. The gratitude grinch. Now, one of the ways we get rid of that is that we think about and we think beyond the stuff in heaven. But if we don't, then we live lives of disappointment and we lose joy and we lose peace And we don't like where everything's going. And instead of blaming our circumstances, we should be looking at our own hearts. We should be asking ourselves, what do I keep in my heart? Instead of saying, well, it's, you know, it's all their fault. We should ask, what am I keeping in my heart? Now, I'm going to expand this and ask this question. Because wrong thinking leads to wrong living. And we can think correctly about certain things, but... Because it's absent in our mind, it never penetrates into our core values of what we say and what we believe. What do you want to pass on to your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your friends, your families? What do you want to pass on? What do you want to create as a legacy? And it really begs the question, where are you? Now, my 37 years of ministry... I've run into a lot of people who express it this way. I know, but I can't. 
Think about that. I, I know I shouldn't think or feel or do these things, but I can't. I mean, do you want to pass that kind of mentality on to your kids? Do you want to say, listen, I'm addicted to whatever. It can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can be food, it can be entertainment. Do you want to pass on a mentality and say, listen, you know, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but you know, you don't understand, I can't. What about forgiveness? I know I should forgive, but I just can't. You don't understand. What about a particular lifestyle that literally is creating a massive debts in your life? I know I really shouldn't buy that, but I just can't. And if you need a perfect illustration, look at the insatiable desire of our own country in terms of our own budget that we're $20 trillion in the hole. I know I can't really reflects attitudes to most anything. You know, and the truth is it frustrates us if our kids sit there and say, well, you know, Mom and Dad, I know I should clean my room up, but I can't. <laughs> what do we tell them? Oh, yes, you can. Did they learn it from us? You know, sometimes our our children are mere reflections of of our attitudes and choices and lifestyles that we make. You know, the theology of heaven. We know that it's real. We know that we're going to have an inheritance that will never burn or be destroyed. It's not subject on the Dow Stock Exchange. We know that there's an all-powerful, majestic God who has already given us far beyond what we deserve or could even afford. We know that we have a creative God. I mean, he designed everything you see and everything you don't see. And someday in heaven, it will blow your mind. We know that we are secure in this calling. If we are in Christ, there is no force in this world that can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen? Now, having said all that, what this means is we are called to live the presence of Christ and bring him into everyone and everything. So just imagine in the year 2016, that we stay focused and positive, embrace the abundance of God, that we live life understanding that there's a heaven, that we live the blessings of God instead of squandering them on ingratitude. Imagine in 2016, if we consider what kind of legacy we want to pass on. And we enter this new year. And we're back in 1 Peter, by the way. That's what we're going to start next week. We kind of put it on hold for Advent. We're going to start right back in it again. And ask ourselves, what am I going to fill my heart with this year? I mean, you choose that. You choose what you bring into your heart. Now, one of those things I pray that you ponder in your heart is a vision of heaven and what it means for all of us. Makes life a little more bearable, doesn't it? Because whatever's going to happen there, in terms of eternity, (laughs) this here on earth is so small and minuscule. It's hard to imagine what 100 years is like in terms of all of eternity. 
I'm going to close with a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to sing a series of songs that really kind of talk about heaven. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to read a passage that we already looked at when we were studying 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen.